Hello, everyone. This is Stephen Key. Thank you for attending tonight's webinar. We have a very, very special guest, Gene Quinn. Um, I've known Gene now for quite a few years. He's a patent attorney. He's also a law professor. He's the founder of IP Watchdog. If you haven't um, gone over to ipwatchdog.com and and um, I've checked that out, he's got articles on intellectual property from from just about everyone. So, Gene, thank you very much for coming on tonight. Sure, no problem, Stephen. Anytime. I'm always happy to join you. Before we start in, I love this topic, as you know, provisional um, provisional patent applications, because I think it's a great tool. Let's talk a little bit about IP Watchdog and what you do over there. Okay. Sure. Um, so IP Watchdog, like so many things in life, was unscripted. And it just, it was... Uh, so, so as you know, Stephen, I'm I have the entrepreneur's uh, bug or bite or however you want to call it. Uh, so, I just put one foot in front of the other and saw some opportunities along the way and noticed many years ago I was the stuff I was putting up on the internet because we were so early to the internet. I've been doing it for almost 21 years that people were just reading it and then I used it as a way to educate and to inform people who wanted then legal work done. So I used it to collect legal work. And then, you know, fast forward to 2008 when the financial crisis, the real estate market collapsed and then nobody had any money and everybody was scrambling. So I had this asset and I had plenty of time to write because nobody was hiring anybody for work. So then I turned it into much more of a publication. And, and since then, it's really become an online magazine and we have guest authors. I two years ago hired an editor-in-chief, which then allows me to spend a lot more time on doing web free webinars and live programming and virtual programming. And, you know, we're always looking for what's what's next. And we're going to roll out a whole bunch of stuff coming out in September, you know, that's going to be a lot more like, hopefully, if it comes out right, maybe TV production kind of live streaming. And, you know, we're just never stopping trying to move forward, which is sort of the entrepreneur's mantra. Well, you've done a fantastic job over there, Gene, but you've also won quite a few awards as well, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, that it's been, it, it, you know, sometimes it, it's been uh, one of these events, like when somebody reads my bio, it's like, did I really do all that? You know, and it's like, so uh, the ABA, the American Bar Association, used to have us in their annual uh, blog category, and we won the intellectual property section so many years in a row that then they put us into the hall of fame and retired us from consideration. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then I, I was now twice to both in 2014 and then last year, uh, recognized as one of the top 50 most influential people in the intellectual property world worldwide. And, you know, to win something like that, it's like extremely humbling. It's, you because know, uh, one of the other people who won last year was uh, uh, Director Yanko, you know, and, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, so obviously we do different things and we're influential, maybe for not maybe, but influential for obviously different reasons. But uh, still to be on that kind of a short list is, uh, it, it's just, you know, it gives you chills, you know, so I'm just putting one foot in front of the other and very grateful that, you know, people like you, and and your fans uh, think highly enough of me to to come over to IP Watchdog and read me and 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 you know share what we're doing. 
on social media and with their friends and family. It's a great resource, and I have to have to admit, Gene, every once in a while there's a topic I'm not familiar with, and I type it in Google, and sure enough, you covered it on your site, and I always go there to get it. Um, yeah. So the content is spot on, it's current, and if anybody wants more information on intellectual property strategy from some of the best in the field, please go over to IP Watchdog, and it's just a gold mine of, of great stuff. So. Um, Gene, I want to talk about provisional patent applications. I love them. Yeah, and I do too. So, it's when did was it the late '90s that that program was developed? Is it 90, 1995? Do you remember? Yeah, exactly 1995. You you have a very good memory, and it was uh, when they changed the patent term. You might remember the patent term used to be. Uh, 17 years from issue, and then they changed it to 20 years from filing as a part of, you know, some harmonization efforts. Mm -hmm. And um, so fundamentally, a couple a couple things were going to were going to happen that were um, were odd. Uh, one in, in a nutshell, what a provisional patent lets you do, and we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, is you can file your application and establish priority without the term clock running. Um, but uh, if you're in the US, you have to file a US application realistically before you file outside the, the US. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's because you need to get uh, an, uh, permission to file outside the US in terms of a foreign filing license. And the easiest way to do that is with a patent application filing. So there was going to be this odd occurrence where foreign folks were going to be in a better position than U.S. folks because they could file a foreign application because they're outside the U.S. Uh, and they could establish rights for up to a year before they filed in the U.S. without the term running. So Congress realized that, well, that doesn't sound right. So we need to create a provisional application to give US citizens the same rights that a foreign citizen would have and still get the ability to get a foreign filing license. It's kind of nuanced, but that's the okay. reason that they were created. Wonderful. Hey, um, John, please, um, let's go to the first slide, please. Because I know there's a lot of people that are new to this, Gene, that mm -hmm. um, don't really understand what a provisional patent application is. So can you kind of give us an overall view of why you would use it? What does it do for you? And, and what are some of the benefits of it? Yeah, I mean, a provisional patent application, the, the, the best way to think about it is, is it is an application that, that allows you to use, in the first instances, the coveted terms patent pending. Now, if you don't have a patent application on file, you, you cannot use the terms patent pending. That would be uh, misleading and uh, actually fraudulent, and it would come with penalties. So if you file a, an application, any application, you can use patent pending. So a provisional is one way you can do that. And it also, by filing a provisional application, it allows you to define whatever your invention is at the moment without starting the examination process and without starting the patent term clock 
from ticking. So the patent term, the 20 year term that we were just talking about, won't start until you file a non-provisional later on. Um, and it also doesn't start the examination process, which is important because then you're not gonna be incurring any additional costs uh, of uh, examination or dealing with the examiner. Uh, so a provisional application is really a great way. And in fact, now that we're first to file, you really need to get your applications filed as soon as possible after you've invented. And filing a provisional is a great way to do it because there's no formalities. The focus is on describing the invention. You don't have to do it in any particular way. It just has to be described so somebody would be able to understand it. So there's only positives with a provisional. Now, of course, where's the catch? The catch is if you do a bad job describing your invention in the provisional, then it's worthless. And in fact, it may even be worse than worthless. It may prove that at the time you filed, you didn't have an invention. So you do have to really describe the invention. You can't just like use some sales language. Um, that's not what a patent's about. You have to describe what it is from a structural, technical uh, framework. Gene, the reason why I like it so much is that if I come up with an invention, mm -hmm. and I'm not quite sure if it's marketable yet, and um, I'm not probably don't have all the information. Maybe it's a, I'm at a good starting point. Maybe I don't have all the the little details that I particularly like, like manufacturing details, material details, but I have, I kind of, I have a good idea. I'm kind of guessing a little bit. So I file that provisional patent application. It's extremely affordable. And within that year, I'm learning quite a bit. I'm doing a little bit more research. I'm discovering things. And then I'm, I have the ability to file another provisional patent application in which I can bring them all together within that year. That's how I like it. Is that, am I, is that the right approach? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with, the, the great thing about provisionals is once you file it, you've established the rights with respect to whatever you've described. So now you can go and start talking to people about what's in the application. Now, in an ideal world, you would do all of this stuff simultaneously. You know, if you were a large multinational corporation, you would have uh, engineers and scientists working to do it. You would have people working on, is there a market and doing market research? You would have marketing people figuring out how would you package it? You know, which are your channels of distribution? What's your, your target market? What, how old they are, you know, demographics and who are your potential partners and where are you going to sell it and all that kind of stuff. But you're an individual. You can't be doing everything all at once. So you got to pick something first. And the provisional is a great place to start because it, it locks in your rights, then lets you go and talk to other people about the other steps in the in along the way. And as as we've talked many times, Stephen, the one thing is a lot of times inventions aren't gonna work. They're not gonna make people money. So I'm a big fan of provisionals because they they are relatively inexpensive. Uh, to file and particularly give the inventor an opportunity to do a lot of the work themselves. It, it, 
if they have you know like some guidance they can do it i i feel and and then if it doesn't work out then they can move on to what's next the the worst scenario is when if somebody spends all their money on their first invention and it goes nowhere and it's their second invention that would have been a success mm-hmm. you know because, they don't have any money for that one yeah because if i rush out out of fear and i rush out and file a patent which i maybe i don't know if it's going to be marketable and i don't have all the information and i rush out and file it and find out later oops there there maybe there's maybe i missed something here then i have to mm-hmm. go back and file another one so it really saves me i believe uh, a lot of heartache and time and money um instead Absolutely. of just rushing out and filing a patent yeah, and you may actually find that there's no, nothing that you can do. You know, you may find out along the process that it's a dead end, and that's perfectly fine. You know, I mean, not every project you work on is going to be successful. Um, so then you can just move on to what's next. And how, how do you know if you're an inventor, right? You know, you're an inventor if there's going to be a, a, the next invention. You know, and um, so you you got to do these things in a in a responsible way and if you actually go to ip watchdog and you type in business responsible there's going to be all kinds of articles come up that's something i preach all the time you have to have a plan and part of that plan is to secure rights and pursue them for so long as they make sense to pursue and as you go along the way it's going to maybe cost you more money to do so you want to start off uh, cheap and then move forward once you have reason to know the market looks good maybe the patent search looks good maybe you've got partners that are interested you know or or any combination of those Mm -hmm. now gene um let's talk about uh really writing a provisional patent application that has value Mm -hmm. because you know how important that is to me yeah um and i know that you know a lot of inventors think i'm just if i've got this idea i'm an invention i'm just going to hand it over to a patent agent or patent attorney and they're going to do all the heavy lifting do all the work for me and i i know that's not true no. i know that they're only as good as the information you provide them so if you do file a, a non-provisional later you've given them all the good stuff in that that provisional patent application. If not, it won't be that good. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. I mean, you have to give your attorney the information or otherwise the attorney's the inventor. You know, the attorney didn't invent it, you did. And so you have to give them the information. So there's gonna be a certain amount of explaining you're gonna need to be able to do to begin with. Uh, And the more you can do, the cheaper it's gonna be for you. Okay. Um, and uh, what, what do you want to talk about? I mean, one of the ways that I find the easiest to explain is with pictures. Hmm. Um, you know, and that's I'm a big fan of, uh, and not not pictures. Excuse me, like photographs. Hmm. Photographs, as it turns out, believe it or not. And I'm an amateur photographer, so I, I know of what I talk about here. It is extremely difficult to capture in a photograph what you actually have in your mind's eye. 
You know, it, it is it is terrible. I mean, how many times have you taken a photograph and say, this would be great except for that road sign. This would be great except for that bird that's flying there. This would be great except for the glare, you know, whatever the case may be. Now, if you're taking uh, a picture of your invention, that's not going to be, that's not going to cut it. What you want is you you want good drawings. They can be, for a provisional, they can be CAD, you know, if you're going to get some uh, some work done to uh you're likely going to have CAD drawings, so you can use CAD drawings. You can also use uh, patent illustrations, and the okay. drawings are usually relatively inexpensive. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, John, would you please um, <clears throat> turn to the slide that says drawings for me, please? Because I knew, Gene, you were going to talk about this, so yeah. I, I've got a slide I, up here so for You it. probably do, yeah. It's, I think it's towards the end, John. One more, one more, one more. <laughs> there it is. Okay, yeah. Gene, yeah. I'm a big fan of drawings too. Yeah. And because I think a drawing is like a thousand words. Yeah, where I, easy, I might, easy. Yeah, I might miss something. You know what I like about drawings too? I look at a provisional patent application um, it's kind of instructions for someone to build this. Um, I explain it. I like, you know, when some, when a package comes to my house and I order something and I have to put it together and I love these instructions and they always have drawings. So it's like, mm -hmm. I, I love that because it, it, it tells me, look, these are the parts, this is how they go together. And this is what it looks like at the end. I love drawings because it, it's a roadmap. Do you feel the same way? Am I wrong about that? No, you are 100% correct. And I have a real world story. And I don't know that I've ever told you this story, Stephen. You know, and I, uh, this is a client, you know, so if we, I'm in my uh, studio right now. And one of the things I have in my studio is a wakeboard. So I have this client that um, I've, I originally helped starting back in like 2007. And he had come up with this really cool wakeboard. And, you know, we were, I looked at it and um, I knew there was something unique about what was going on there because you could see some really elderly people in their 70s or older getting up on this wakeboard. Or, and then you could see people that were very big, like uh, the size of football linemen getting up on this wakeboard. Now I'm a big guy and I've never gotten up on a wakeboard. I just get dragged around the lake all day long. So I knew he had something special there. And so we filed a patent application. And now today the company's worth probably about 10,000, 10, $10 million company. And uh, so he kept telling me that the method of riding the wakeboard is unique and he wanted to patent it. And I'm like, are you kidding? It, it's not, it, it, and he was insistent. So when you have a client that's insistent, you you know you you believe them. I said, look, if the method of writing the wakeboard, if we have any hope of protecting this, we have to storyboard this like a cartoon almost, you know, like frame by frame. So we did that. We had like nine or ten drawings showing the person from being in prone position. Then, you know, like what they would be, you know, like a split second later and a split second later and a split second later, all the way up until they're standing, riding the wakeboard, being towed behind the boat. 
So in the first patent, we got a, a on the wakeboard, um, and what really turned out to be the most valuable protection that they got was eventually they got protection without me representing them getting the claims. It was a friend of mine uh, took over the case, uh, got a method patents on riding the wakeboard. And it, what was unique in it was that when you actually did the physics, and I kept telling, and this is a good story for two reasons, because I kept telling him, I was like, there's something going on here that we don't understand. We need to hire somebody to do the physics, you know, whether it be a starving uh, PhD student or something, but there's something magical here that we're missing, you know? And of course, there wasn't enough money to even hire, you know, a starving student to run the physics equations. And I wish he had done that. But so that's a word to the wise, you know, when you can add physics to your story in math, it's it's good. Uh, and you can get help with that from your local colleges. Don't feel like you got to hire an expert for an extraordinary amount of money. Hire a master student or a PhD student. Then those people are making nothing. Anything that you help them with. And it'll be a line item on their resume, you know. So in any event, what wound up being the, the magic here was the way that you would take the the tow rope from the board, it was attached to the board such that you had to take it off and pull towards your center of gravity. And that made all the difference in the world with ease of riding this thing. And it was clear as day shown when we storyboarded it but if we didn't have the drawings they would never have gotten those patents because we didn't know that when we filed the the application so there was no text saying it you know gene i thank you for that story because i tell everybody do a flow chart from the very beginning to the end as just kind of your guide you do this, you do this, you do this. I want to see it. And you can start to look at all the elements that are involved. It kind of, to me, it kind of gives me this skeleton of what I need to think about, especially when I storyboard it just like that. I love that because mm -hmm. yeah. it tells us, it, it, it guides you. It tells the story that even potentially a patent examiner can see it and understand it maybe even easier because I think um, it's important. So, and that's actually exactly what happened in this case, because my friend went to the examiner and they did an interview and he brought the board and he says, I literally, he got up on the examiner's desk on the board, like he was, <laughs> and showing him how it worked with all the forces and everything. And the examiner okayed the patent right then. You know, it, it matters that much because when you can say, and right now I'm showing you figure this in the application. And right now I'm demonstrating figure this. And do you see how I'm doing this here? You know, and it made all the difference in the world. I love it. Hey, um, John, please find the one slide where it talks about manufacturing. Because this is a good segue to talk about this. Okay, Gene, something you talked about, I, I really love because sometimes we come up with an invention, but we're not quite sure about how it maybe is put together. Maybe we yeah. don't know the components. Maybe we're not electrical or uh, mechanical engineer. Maybe we don't even know about manufacturing. So mm -hmm. I know how important that is. So yeah. when I work on my stuff, I go, look, I anything I don't know, I need to find out. And I've even 
found people on LinkedIn that if I have a, my invention is going to impact a piece of equipment and I want to know how it's going to impact it, I will look up the piece of equipment and find an ex-employee of that company, find them on LinkedIn and, and hire them uh, as a consultant, have them sign an NDA, work for hire uh, agreement to pick his brains because yeah. He, he has real life knowledge that it's important for me to put in my application. Am I going too far with that? No, I mean, you need to have, I mean, the, the rule is this, you need to describe the invention so that others of skill in the area, whatever area you're inventing in, can both make and use the invention. Now, inventors are great at explaining how to use it. They're less great at explaining how to make it. And, uh, and I, and you know, Stephen, we laugh, you and I, I don't know, we've had this conversation, but we in the patent area, we laugh about it. You'll ask an inventor how to make it and they'll tell you how to use it. And then you'll say, no, no, I need to know how to make it. And then they'll tell you how to use it again. And then you think you finally get it across and then they'll just reword how they told you how to use it, <laughs> you know? And it's like, it's not really all that helpful. Yeah. You need to know how to put it together. Okay. Now, you don't need to know how somebody, whether it's going to be in China or whether you make it in America, how they're going to mass produce it. But you need to be able to describe how to make one. Yeah. You know what I even like, Gene? I'm, I'm, I take it, you know, yeah, I take it pretty, as you know, I take it a little further than most people. Um, and you don't have to do this with every idea. I want—I don't want everybody that's listening tonight and go, "God, this is so technical." But if 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 you really want to become a professional at this, you should listen to everything we're talking about tonight because over time you just get better at this. Right. And and sometimes when I design an invention, and I know how to manufacture it at the lower lowest cost. That to me has huge value now, especially if I'm going to try to license it. And and knowing that, going into those meetings and talk about my point of difference, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, that knowledge I can either find out myself, I could watch those YouTube videos, I might go to a manufacturing facility, I might find a, a materials expert. I dig a little bit deeper because I know those little, the devil's in the details, Jane. Absolutely. Right. I mean, 100%. And, you know, inventors will always say, but well, I want my patent to be broad. I don't want it to be narrow. Well, not true. You want it to be both. Yep. You, you, you can't have a patent that is only narrow and you can't have a patent that's only broad. What you want to do is, is you want to describe it so that it's both broad and narrow. Um, so in the way I describe it is this is let, let and so I know a lot of you folks are probably not at the point where you have a product that is ready for sale, but let's say that that's who you were right now. What you want to do, if that's you, is you want to have a patent that covers exactly, literally what you're selling so that that way anybody who knocks you off, it's an easy, easy, they're knocking you off. There's no, there's no doubt about it. You know, it's an easy case. But then you also want to have broader rights so that when people kind of start fishing around the edges and maybe they're not literally knocking you off, but they're changing this or modifying that, 
that you have broader protection than what you're literally selling. So you can prevent them as well. So the patent is a is not a single right. A patent is a whole bunch of different rights. So that. so don't think of it as is an all or nothing. You want to have both general and specific. And I don't think you're going too too much on this. Like you say, if you want to be a professional, you have to treat the endeavor like professionals treat the endeavor. And uh, the one thing I will say is to make sure folks aren't scared about it is that uh, if you in the industry have an occasion to look at the patents from large corporations, um, I would say probably most large corporations, and this is going to be generalization, but not without some real specific reasons and reasoned facts behind it, probably at least 50 to 60% or more in some cases of their patents are are not that great. They're okay. You know, they're okay enough to get granted. You know, so even the big boys mm -hmm. don't do it the right way 100% of the time and they still get rights. So what yeah. we're trying to talk to you about is doing it the A way 100% of the time. So because if you're striving to do it the A way and you make a mistake, well, so then you got it B plus, you know, that's still going to be better than the vast majority of stuff that's out there. I'm really glad you said that because you you know I'm a real stickler for this, okay? And um, and I'm glad you feel that way because I I, I do believe that, as we said at the very beginning, you, you have to give your patent agent or patent attorney, when, you, when you're ready to file a non-provisional, and if you, if you know your invention is marketable, you have to give them the good stuff. Um, yeah. So I wanna talk about, now take it, like I said, a little bit further, I want to protect my invention, but I want to protect the innovation. Like you said, make it broad now so I can, so it's it's broad enough that if someone gets close to it, um, I can maybe keep them at bay. So John, please um, turn to variations of workarounds, please. There you go. All right. Am I crazy, Gene? I have a question for you here. Okay. Well, you, you probably are crazy. <laughs> We're both yeah. crazy, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I'm always thinking, how could someone work around me? Okay. I'm always thinking, because I, I know these engineers, and I know people are really smart, and I know innovation keeps on moving forward. And I know that um, if I kind of get ahead of it, if I, I call it stealing it, I steal my invention from myself. And I, I start to think about, <laughs> what's that? I love uh, that, by the way. Yeah, I I, I want to, because I've been in these meetings before, and I know these guys are really smart engineers, and they've been taught to work around stuff. And so yep. I'm always thinking, how would someone work around me? And what type of variations could I put in there? Not only to protect my invention today, but maybe, maybe a little, maybe the innovation. Is that a smart move? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's absolutely essential. You have to do that because that's what people do. Is and there's, you shouldn't be shocked. And you know, we we can get on our high horse and say, you know, that that shouldn't happen. And they're stealing stuff. And there's a difference between when a company like 
sometimes Apple's been known to do this. Sometimes Microsoft's been known to do this. I've just read the other day that, you know, Google or Amazon are now starting to do this, which is not shocking, you know, because a lot of the big companies have done this at some point in time or another, is, is they'll let you think they want to deal with you. Then they'll have you come in. They'll have you lay all of your inventions out on the table. <laughs> and then once you lay it all out on the table, they don't need you anymore and they start making them. Now, if you don't have the rights to stop them, then you've got nothing, you know, and uh, it's not personal, it's business. Now, I think that misleading you on is is really rotten, but, you know, so save that situation that I think has, you know, kind of a, a you know, it's just evil, but infringement is not moral. It's people are looking to say, you have this right. It's almost like, think of your property you know people are looking at your property well this is where your property line ends mm -hmm. so if i stand here i'm not trespassing yeah. um it, it's not a moral uh decision it's just business so it's your job to make sure that that property line extends as far as possible uh and that's how you do it with variations and alternatives now the two different the difference and it's kind of a slight difference is with an alternative you would have uh, it would be a whole different version. Yes. And with a variation, it would be, okay, well, and not to say this would be a patentable distinction, but it comes in green or blue. I mean, so that's the same thing comes in green or blue. So let me give you a, for instance, to put this for, let's say you, you, you've invented a device that, uh, that uh, manages to clip papers together. So there's the ordinary paper clip, but then there's also a binder clip. Now those two things are structurally different. Okay, so they would, you would need to have, uh, and, and then there's a, there even differences within the ordinary paperclip. You know, there's the ones that are shaped like in an X form or the ones that are, are kind of loop around themselves. You know, so you would have different alternatives structurally, yeah. and then you would have different variations, meaning that, well, it can be made out of metal or they can be made out of plastic. Um, and you want all of those things. You want a matrix of variation, whether it be a, a true variation like we just talked about, or an alternative. Um, and that's where you get the real breath. And the and I've had so many inventors tell me over time, it's like, but I'm never going to do it that way. And I'm like, I don't care whether you're ever going to do it that way. Somebody is going to want to do it that way. And I've fought so many inventors who say nobody would ever do it that way. And finally, you know, I just got take and say, okay, look, and you can't, well, you probably can do it now. I mean, Home Depot and Lowe's, they're open now, but go to Home Depot, go to Lowe's, whichever is your preferred uh, home improvement store. Walk into the aisle where they sell shovels, a shovel for God's sake. You're going to see everything from like a square metal, uh, piece of metal on a pole all the way up to like the Ferrari of shovels. <laughs> it's going to you know, be concave and it's going to be uh, sharp at the tip and it's going to have this soft memory foam padding and, you know, and it's okay. Well, which one are you going to want? Well, part of it's going to be your budget and part of it's going to be um, what do you need to do? Um, and for some people, the, the cheapest shovel no matter how much harder they're going to have to work is going to be a perfectly fine substitute for the best shovel. Yeah. Um, 
So when you invented a shovel, you need to make sure that you have the cheapest shovel disclosed as well as the Ferrari version. I love it. So Gene, I love that because um, I do believe that it's our job as inventors to, like I said, steal it from ourselves. Yep. Because if someone does come close to it and if you, if, and you've thought about that, you can keep them at bay because I, as you know, I was in federal court defending my patents and gets a little toy company Lego back in the day. Yeah, a little. And one. they were very smart. I mean, they they didn't like the price, and so they reverse engineered it. Very smart engineers. I, I have to kind of admit they did a good job, Gene. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's the thing that's frustrating. You want to hate them. <laughs> I, I, I look back. I go, they did a. They did a good job and it was fair game. I, I try to tell everybody yeah. it was it's fair game, but it's our responsibility now to say, all right, now, if that's the way the game is played, and I know that they might do that, how can I prevent that? Because they, they didn't get hung up on a couple words. Okay, so. Um, <laughs> and that's the, another, the same friend of mine who I was telling you, just talking about earlier before, he's like, patent litigation is one of these things where you, they, take a word that everybody knows what the meaning of is and then in litigation then suddenly nobody can define it and everybody questions what it really means and i'm sure you had that experience right i learned that patents are words that can be interpreted by different people at different times <laughs> and, that's and being that's, generous and that's a very that's a very slippery that's a moving target that i don't really want to be involved in too many times so anyway no 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 but once you are involved in one and people know that you're willing to stand up for yourself then yeah. you know you hopefully you never you're not going to ever be involved in one but, but a part of this too is you have to approach this like you're a serious professional so you've got to check these boxes along the way you have to define your rights you have to present properly you need to be a professional you know, if you act like a jabloni, people are going to treat you like a jabloni. What I like about this, and everybody's listening tonight, what we're talking about, what Gene just said, is becoming a professional and how you present yourself. So when someone challenges your IP, and they're going to do that because there's prior art, and I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But when you know your point of difference and you know you've done some manufacturing background, you know your material and you've got workarounds and variations and you've got all these drawings, you come to the party really prepared. And they look at that and they go, you know, it's probably just best to work with this guy because he's probably an asset. So yeah. I think it has um, these type of tools as a provisional patent application, if it's done well, really serves you well forget about defending it g forget that world but no how you yeah. bring um right yeah because that's really what they what they want is they want the value you bring you know because the other thing too is from the minute that you file the application the application is stale and getting staler by the day because you don't have a duty to update the application now you might make such an important advance that you'll file another application on it. But a lot of times the advances that you're going to make are going to be tweaks around the edges. They're the things you just talked about, Stephen, about, well, I figured out how to make it a little bit more economically. Mm -hmm. Well, but that maybe probably doesn't warrant a patent 
but that is the type of thing that a licensee would really be interested in knowing. Yeah, it, it gives it gives it that perceived ownership I always talk about so much. So, yes. um, John, please go to um, patent searching because that's become pretty important to me. <laughs> yeah, and this is not a real. This is a, a you know a difficult topic now. Um, I, I, I love this, Gene, and I tell everybody it takes a long time to love this, okay? Um, I always tell everybody, too, if you're really if you having a problem falling asleep at night, uh, read, a, read a patent application, and, yeah. and, and trust me, you'll fall asleep real quick. Um, yeah, you will. What I like about this, though, by looking at um, not just all prior art, but prior patents, to me, there's stories that are being told, and it, it explains the history of innovation, or what were people yeah. thinking at this particular time? And I can see the advancement of innovation too. Yeah, so, you really can. I love it that way, and but also, you know, if you have an idea, an invention, if you're really serious about it, I think you should learn how to do it yourself. Okay. And, and knowing that you'll never be an expert at it that way, but you'll be pretty darn good. And it doesn't matter. You're never going to find anything in everything anyway. Okay. But that's a whole nother yeah. argument. But yep. I also believe if this is something you're serious about, learn how to do it yourself. So maybe you might find some things that you can learn, such as uh, what companies are doing what, um, you can look at the innovation and see where they're going. You can see who's filing it. You can look at um, the variations, of course, the, the different um, different types of inventions in your particular field. But it really tells you, do I have a point of difference here? And, and if yeah. I don't have that point of difference, I've got to make a decision that I either redesign, rethink it, or walk away. And I also believe you should hire a professional to do it too. Am I right or wrong? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there. You know, and it, let let's go back to the where I was just saying. In an ideal world, you you do all of it at the beginning and money spare no expense, like the guy said in Jurassic Park. But um, that's not the world we live in. So at least not as inventors usually and entrepreneurs, which most of you on the call probably are. So what we try and do is figure out a way to tell you to do this in, in, in a in a systematic way that you can move forward with that is responsible, that checks the boxes, gets you the information you need when you need it, and uh, lets you move forward. So the first thing is, is since we live in a first to invent world, which you must interpret as file first, um, what we have started telling people is, is that it is probably best to file the provisional application before you do a prior art search. Now, asterisk, what does that mean? Certainly before you would do a professional prior art search with a, you know, a patent search firm, because that can take a couple weeks uh, to get back. And it's going to take you probably a week or so or 10 days to go through. Um, all the patents, you know, because they're they're boring and difficult, and that a search can come back sometimes with anywhere from 10 to 50 patents that you're going to need to take a look at. Um, so, does it make sense to 
put off filing a provisional or should you go and file the provisional, get your priority date and then do something? I think what you should do is you should probably do some, you got to do some kind of searching on your own first. Is you got to do a product search on Google or whatever search engine you're using to see, can I find it? Is anybody selling it? Can and then do some kind of prior art search. And the more you you try and get better at it on your own, like like you were saying, Stephen, the better off you're going to be. Because um, in your pro and don't be uh, surprised if you don't find anything, because when you first start searching, nobody finds anything. That's you have to search a lot of times for an hour or two before you start getting to the good stuff. And then once you get to the good stuff, that's when it really starts to open because they'll start, you'll start using the same terms that you're reading in the patents that are close. And then that, then they, your keyword searching gets better and better. So if you're trying to figure out what's out there, do some searching on your own, but don't do so much that you're going to put off getting the filing date in because the, to file a provisional application, is so cost effective. The filing fee for a small entity is $140 and, is, and for a micro entity, it's $70 um, that you're gonna wanna file. Now, then at some point after that, then on be certainly between then and when you file the non-provisional, before you file the non-provisional, you absolutely need to have a professional prior art search done by somebody who is uh, does this for a living? Because even they, a search by somebody like that, is not going to be nearly as good as the examiner search at the patent office. Simply because by the time you get to the patent examiner, you're going to be dealing with like the one person who has for 40 hours a week been dealing with exactly this technology. Sometimes for like the wakeboard example I gave you, that examiner was a 30-year examiner. In, in the art of water sports, you know? So the, the searchers, I mean, what kind of search you think that guy could do, you know? <laughs> but wait a I minute, mean, wait a minute, wait a minute, Gene. Okay, I, I But I that get doesn't it. mean, that I, doesn't I mean that you shouldn't look, you should look. Okay. And, and the, but, but the big thing, and I guess where I was going with all this is, let me dial back a little bit, because more important than finding anything, I think, is reading what is in a patent and starting to familiarize yourself with what is there and and how do people describe inventions and how do i need to describe my invention and is there is there anything out there that is too close for my comfort and if there is if it's too close for for your comfort then guarantee you there's going to be other stuff that's closer <laughs> So that sounds fair, Stephen. It sounds fair. Two 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 things though. Um, I do believe you have to help your you do it yourself, but you also have to help the person, the in, the third party independent search person. And I don't think it should be your patent attorney, by the way. And that's a whole nother discussion. I think you need to help them do a good job too, because yeah, it's happened to me where. Um, my patent attorneys found a third party in DC, they did a search and they didn't find anything. Um, and later, you know, after I filed two patents, someone else found two. Okay, so 
So I kind of wasted a lot of money because that search wasn't really done correctly because I wasn't talking to the third party. My attorneys were. And, and I learned I should have given my patent attorneys more information to give to them. Right. And and kind of know the space. I, I need to know the market, similar products on the market. I, I need to know some of the similar uh, patents that are out there to do my own searching. So it goes back again for you to become the expert. Um, I mean, absolutely. Okay, that that's one thing I've learned. But here's the funny thing. Now, now, Gene, I understand these patent examiners. They're really nice guys. They don't they don't seem to be nice guys, but they're nice guys. Yeah, by they, really, they they really know their area. You're right. Yeah. But why is it when you get that office action, they're always <laughs> they're all they're always showing you those priorities that have nothing close to what you have. Why is that if they're so good at it? Uh, I wish I had an answer for that. I mean, the, the answer is going to be so unsatisfying. I mean, you know, the the review that you get a lot of times the first time out from an examiner is usually pretty poor. Um, and wait a minute, examiner, you just said they're experts at this. So why is they're, that? They're, they're experts at searching. And what it is, is they have, they're on their time crunch. I mean, they only have, but like, so for an, an area like, uh, like the, so maybe something like simple, like kitchen gadgets, they probably only have 12 or 13 hours for the entirety of the application. And that it would include doing the, the search, reviewing the search, which is gonna take them two to three hours to do, regardless of what they're searching for. Uh, even if it's just a kitchen gadget, uh, reading your application, going over the claims, creating the office action, then uh, talking to you on the phone for 30 minutes or whatever, then uh, getting your response back, reviewing it, maybe doing another supplemental search, finding some more art, doing another office action. I mean, it's not a lot of time. So a lot of times I think that the examiners um, There's two answers, really. The one is the examiners are so crunched on time that they're going too fast. And two is sometimes we assume that they've read the the specification. They don't read the specification. They look at the pictures no. and they read and they read the no. claims. No. Okay. But Gene, is could that be off topic for just a second? Could that be the reason that we have some bad patents? Well, I'm sure, I'm sure it is to some extent, you know, I mean, and, and it is, I mean, right. And here's the thing. There's, there's so many applications that are out there. If, right. and most applications are, or most patents are not going to make people money. So okay. if the office, if the examiner spent all the time getting it right, mm -hmm. then could you imagine what the backlog would be? Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair and, fair and enough. It, you know, so the answer sucks is what it is, but the first time, <laughs> So what you can't what you can't do though is take too the first action you get from the examiner too much to heart. Okay. So so Gene, we maybe we should have you back on to talk about PTAB. Um and that's a whole oh, other I'd love to. Yeah, that's a whole other can of worms. That's a whole other can of worms. So um we're coming up on the hour. I know we only have six minutes left. John, is there any questions there that we could probably answer one or two? Because I, I, I know I don't want to go too much longer. Yeah. I love this topic, by the way. I, I, yeah. 
I don't. Do you have any questions or? John, John, yeah, I'm taking a look here. Let's see. If not, oh wow, yeah. Let's see here. Um. All right. Are you taking clients right now, Gene? Um. Right at the moment, I am not affiliated with a law firm. Um. But if you need help finding an attorney, I can uh, recommend somebody to you that can probably help you. So if you want to find me on LinkedIn, link in with me is probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. And uh, and I'll uh, ask you a couple questions and try and point you in the right direction. Gene, life is pretty good. You're 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 a patent attorney, but you're not practicing anymore because you you're educating us. So good job with that. Yeah, I'm yeah I'm trying. To, I mean, what what it is is I'm I'm an entrepreneur. I'm trying to do my my own thing here with the the building a media empire. We'll see how that goes. Well, it's going well. <laughs> All right. What next question, John? Yeah. Next one. Uh, does filing a provisional patent start the international time clock for publication? Um, yes, on the, when you, you, if you want to get some rights internationally, you would file eventually a PCT application would probably be your next stop. And all the PCT dates are geared towards the first filing date. Now, if you are going to go outside the U S what you should make sure you do in your provisional application is make sure you have at least one claim. Um, because some countries, and in particularly the European Patent Office, has become a, a stickler for form over substance. If you don't have a, you don't need to have a claim in your provisional for U.S. practice, but in the European practice, they say that well, if you don't have a claim, we don't know what your invention is. Now you'll see how much ridiculous, how ridiculous that is, because if you say I claim the, let's say you you disclosed a, a kitchen gadget and you say, I claim the device that I have disclosed, that's perfectly fine. Now they suddenly know what your invention is. So you can literally make it that generic, um, but you have to have at least some kind of claim if you wanna go outside the United States as best practice. Excellent. Um, what happens if after filing my PPA, I change my prototype or parts of it? Um, what you, well, what you probably should do is file another provisional application. Then the question will become is 12 months from the filing of the first application, whether or not that first priority date continues to have relevance. If it does, then you would need to file the non-provisional, um, and you would wrap both or everything together that you have at that point into a single non-provisional. Sometimes what you might find is, is that the first provisional that you filed was, was in retrospect inadequate or maybe even wrong after further testing or just you know it, it described a version of the invention that just didn't work very well or not maybe at all or what have you so that you don't worry about that priority date and then you'll then worry about filing 12 months from the second provisional. But those kind of decisions, if you're gonna throw away a priority date like that, I would encourage you to do that only in conjunction with consult, consult with a attorney or agent because giving up on a priority date should be considered a very big decision. Okay. 
Really? Okay. Um, With potential legal consequences, because the reason is, oh, let's wow. say that if you gave up the, in a first to file world, if you gave up a priority date and you had been uh, offering it for sale, for example, or talking about it publish publicly and displaying it, you may have created certain problems that would prevent you from getting a patent altogether. Um, so that's why uh, you really need to, uh, before you would give up a priority date, talk to somebody about your particular factual situation just to make sure that you're not going to be making a, a costly mistake that will prevent you from ever getting a patent. All right. Great advice. Uh, so, John, yeah. Gonna, yeah, John, we're going to stop there because I really okay. want to do this on time. And I know Gene has a lot to do. Gene, thank you very much for coming on. No um, problem. No problem at all. And if you want to have me back, I'd be happy to come right. back and do it sometime. You know, I always enjoy talking to you, Stephen. Yeah, I'm going to ask everybody, put in the, the chat box, if you want Gene back, please thank him. Tell me the next topics you want to hear about. Gene knows what he's doing. He's practical. You guys, here's the difference. He's giving you practical information. And that's what I really love about your, your perspective on all this, because it does get expensive and there is some risks. And you want to be smart yeah. with your dollars. If you are, you, you'll keep on being in this business longer. That's absolutely okay. true, you know. You Gene, really you're need the best. to be smart. You, Thanks thank a lot, Stephen. And thank you all for uh, listening to me for an hour. Oh, I went by fast. John, thank it you very did. much for moving the slides and making everything easy for me. My pleasure. Okay, good night, everybody. Good night.